Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. I'm 71 years old. Yeah, well, who would have guessed, right? I mean, just, who would have thought? But, you know, and I, and I, I physically stand, I don't have, I can't give what really I feel like the leader needs to give. And our prayer was, we knew for years, uh, we had prayed with our staff, told our staff, said, look, God's raising up my successor. And when he does that, then I want to invest in that person and then pass the baton like a relay and then step back and let that ministry go forward. And if we did this right, you know, that that person would come in, because I came in 25 years ago to Chattanooga, built upon the foundation of the person who started that program. And we spent 25 years building on that foundation. And we knew that the next leader would build on the, on the foundation that we built. And we wanted to find that time. I mean, we would, we, I'm a Marine. So I believe you die with your boots on, you know? And uh, I mean, I would, I would go down fighting in the trenches. Uh, and that may make, make me feel good, but it doesn't do much for the people you leave behind, you know? They go, everybody goes, what do we do now? And uh, so our prayer was we didn't want to stay a day longer than the Lord wanted to stay. We didn't want to leave a day sooner than have us leave. And it was kind of find that time between when everybody says, we love you and, and, and oh, we, we don't want you to go. We don't want to miss you. And, and, and between the time where they say, are these guys ever going to leave? You know, so we wanted to find a time somewhere between there, and I think we did. So uh, now, after we were here the last time, uh, we went to Nebraska, because had, we had Nebraska and Iowa for Teen Challenge. And, and you know, way back then, 40 years ago, I mean, there was nothing from between Chicago and Denver. So, I mean, it was like open hunting, and we were all over the place. And I traveled a lot. And uh, how many of you well-traveled people have ever been to Ewing, Nebraska? Do we have anybody here? Yeah, we got a couple. Ewing, Nebraska. I've got a friend uh, had not seen for, for, at that time, 20 years, Art Thompson. Art Thompson was a rancher. Ewing is out in, in ranch country, out into what they call the Sand Hills of western Nebraska. And uh, met Art. Uh, Ewing, the reason not many people have been there, it's like 150 people. You know, when I was there, 150 people in Ewing. And uh, Art had a little place outside of town. Now, this is ranch country, but Art had a little farm, little ranch outside of Ewing. Uh, and, uh, you know, he didn't live in downtown, but out in the suburbs. So Art had this friend. Now, I hadn't seen him for, you know, for 20 years, and, and he was in his late 60s, you know, when I had seen him. And uh, uh, so... We were traveling Western Nebraska. I said to Shirley, I said, we, we've got to go see Art. I haven't seen him for 20 years. And so uh, Art didn't have a phone. And, and I don't think 20 years ago, I'm not sure if I even had a cell phone. But we, uh, we, we drove up into the, uh, to the driveway. And uh, here's Art's coming out of the barn. And, and you know, he's carrying a, a bucket of stuff for the pigs. And, uh, you know, saw us, dropped the bucket. And, uh, you know, we hugged each other and stuff. And uh, so... You know, we, we just had a great time catching up. And now when I met Art way, way back when we first started Teen Challenge, he had never been out of the state of Nebraska, never traveled at all. And when we got there, he, he was so excited. He said, I have got to tell you about what I did last year. Last year, I went to Dallas, Texas, to the International Farmers and Ranchers Convention in Dallas, Texas. And uh, not, because you guys are Christian, I know you don't watch TV because I would describe the hotel, you know, that uh, it's a very prominent part of the Dallas skyline. I think it's high. It's got a big ball, but, you know, yes. And uh, so Art 
drove to Lincoln, got on a plane, first time ever, flew to Dallas, Texas. I mean, the first day he walked around downtown Dallas like this, like, wow, you know, we don't have grain elevators this big in, in Ewing. And, <laughs> and so they had the first, first workshop. And, uh, you know, and so they, everybody, then they had their breaks. And so uh, and they, they had a lot more people signed up for this conference than what they had imagined. So in the coffee shop uh, where they were having a coffee break, you know, they were gathering chairs from other rooms and stuff. And so Art's at a table. There's a little table, but, but it's like 10 people around this, this table. And uh, ladies, you know how guys are that don't know each other. You know, I mean, you know, the guys are sitting there drinking coffee, and uh, one guy was reading the information about ducks on the back of the sugar packets, and, so, and another guy was counting the light bulbs in the chandelier, you know, and Art's sitting there going, you know, uh, you know, he's like in his late, he's like 88, and he says, man, how, you know, I come a long way, and I want to I meet people, I want to know what's going on. So Art turned to the table, and he began telling everybody about his farm. 84 acres, the old Ford tractor, you know, the corn crib propped up with a couple two-by-fours, a couple cows, duck, and a pig. But he was excited, and he got all done. And, I mean, now everybody's looking, you know. And uh, so it, it worked. It broke the ice. So after Art got done, you know, a guy you know, across the table says, so you really love that place, you know, down in Nebraska? He said, yeah, me and the little missus, we just wouldn't want to live anywhere else. He says, that's really great. Man, it worked. Everybody started talking, you know. So Art starts talking to this, this guy next to him. He says, so where are you from? He says, from Texas. And he goes, you know, up in Nebraska, we hear a lot about Texas. He goes, yeah, you know. And uh, he says, well, tell me about your ranch, you know. And the guy's, you know, ears turned red, you know, Ross Perot. And uh, his ears turned red, you know. And he said, well, it's, a, it's just a ranch, you know. And, and uh, you know, now Art's curious. He said, you know, really? I mean, you know, I, tell me about your place. He said, well, uh, I suppose it's more than enough for my family and I. And he takes a sip of coffee and kind of looks away, you know. And, and uh Apparently embarrassed and art man, he's really curious now. So he leads, you know, no, everybody's talking. So he says, really, no, really. I mean, I'd like to really know about your place, you know. And so the guy looks around and see that everybody's talking. And so he leans over to art. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, when I get up early in the morning, and if I go out and if I get up, get in my pickup truck, and if I head out as the sun is coming up in the east, I can almost get to the other side of our property. You know, and Art's sitting there looking at him, smiling. He says, yeah. He's had a pickup truck just like that once. <laughs> you know? So anyway, I, uh... <laughs> and being it's five years, and there are some people here, I'm going to make a shameless plug. Out in the, uh, and when you come in the atrium, uh, there's a table there, and there's some books. This is my book. Uh, this is uh, my story about uh, my three tours of duty in Vietnam, uh, getting shot, bayoneted, burned, left to die. And, and I know that's... Uh, that doesn't sound like much of a story, does it? <laughs> but it's only $20, and after what I went through, that's really not very much money. So you, you can get that out there, and, and uh, it'll be available. These are already signed, but I'll personalize it for you. Uh, you know that, that chorus, this is the way I do battle. Well, I would like to make that, every time I go out, this, I would love to, to, to have that be my, my theme. Amen? Amen? Because in this room today, most of you are doing battle. Now, you may not have done battle the way I did. And I thank God that, you know, I had people come up and apologize. Well, I was in Vietnam, but I, never, I didn't say, I said, good. Thank you, Jesus. God had another plan for you. But we're involved in battle. And uh, 
and I'm afraid the church, and I'm not talking about this church, I'm talking about the church in general, we're, we haven't been representing Jesus well. And we're, we're losing the battle. And so my prayer today is I've been praying that something that I would be able to share today would, would speak to your heart. Because I believe God is raising up a generation of warriors. You know, we were praying, you know, uh, which direction God would take me. And, and uh, so there was one song about, you know, where, where, you know, he lifts up broken people. I thought, well, I, I think I qualify for that. But man, we got to that. I got, oof, man, I got, I got instructions. Let's pray. Father, so many years, Lord, I, I was a sermon listener. And God, this morning, Holy Spirit, I need your help this morning. Father, because I don't want it to be about me. Father, my story is just your story through me. And I would not be here today. Dave said he would not be here for Teen Challenge. Father, I would not have been a Teen Challenge, but for your grace and your mercy. And so, Father, this morning, I pray, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive what the Holy Spirit would speak through me. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, I, uh, I grew, up, grew up in an inner city. My parents, I grew up in a dysfunctional family. Now, dysfunction wasn't a, a word that I learned in school. Uh, those of you who remember, uh, I was not a good student. I made it through high school by Grace. Grace Agnew, the principal there who wanted me out just as soon as possible. <laughs> but... Uh, and I've got an identical twin brother. And I'll tell you what, we, we, you know, I mean, we were identical. We used to have a lot of fun with that when we were young. We used to kid that, uh, you know, only God could tell us a part of my mom if she wasn't drinking. And, uh, <laughs> and I, really, I was not a good student. My brother was. And so when we, grad, we were getting ready to graduate from high school, and we were downtown. I grew up in inner city Toledo, Ohio. We were downtown one day before graduation. And I remember looking at my brother and saying, Ron, let's join the Marine Corps. And, of course, he was the smartest of the two of us until uh, that day. And he goes, okay. You know? And we went to the Marine Corps recruiting office, and they had my favorite poster inside. You know, here's a guy dressed blue, sharp. He's got this dress blue uniform on, and it says above it, the Marines are looking for a few good men. We went inside anyway. And... <laughs> Went from high school graduation to Marine Corps boot camp. Let me tell you something, sports fans, that'll get your attention. But, you know, I, I didn't realize it, but, I, but inside it was like, you know, because I grew up with a mom that for years she would look at me. She never said it so, but she'd look at me and she said, you know something, you're never going to mount to anything. You're going to be a bum just like your real dad, who had left my mom when we, and, and all of us when we were four years old. And, uh, and I didn't realize that I was a little kid inside that was going to prove, you know, to his mom that he was going to make something of his life. And so uh, the, uh, 1965, when I joined the Marine Corps, Vietnam was just really gearing up. And I, I after, in, after boot camp, every Marine goes to infantry training. And after infantry training, I volunteered to go to Vietnam. And we began training to, to, for this new kind of warfare that we we're fighting. And so in, uh, uh, as we began training for going to Vietnam, uh, I and I don't know if you've done this, you know, where you, you want to look good, you know, you want to make an impression. I wanted to be the best Marine that I could possibly be. And I wanted the instructors to know that I was up and coming. And, and, and then I was, I'd give it everything that, that I had. And I remember I, I, I made squad, I made PFC right out of boot camp. And, and uh, as we're going through this train, I was a squad leader. And um, we, one day uh, uh, in California, well, we were having first aid training. 
And in, you know, you, we still had a little red notebooks that they gave us in, in boot camp. And so we're having a first aid training and uh, we have a Navy corpsman. See, Navy corpsmen are guys that think they're doctors and they like to make fun of Marines when they can. And so, uh, so here's this Navy corpsman. He's giving us instructions. He says, all right, Marines, this afternoon, we're going to give you, we're going to instruct you how to treat for snake bites when you get to Vietnam. Was like, because I was going to Vietnam, I thought, this is very important. So I got my notebook out, turned the first aid tab, started writing. He says, all right, Marine. He said, now, we have made this so simple that even a Marine can remember it. <laughs> it's only three steps. And so I, number one. He says, all right, Marines, now, when you're in Vietnam, when you get bit by a snake, number one, take a step. I'm writing this down. And he goes, number two, sit down. I'm still writing. And he says, number three, you die. I looked up, and I, I wrote number four, watch out for snakes. <laughs> and he's standing there going, oh, you know, just like, and says, okay, now we're going to show you how to treat for snake bites. And they got, uh, you know, this is California, Camp Pendleton, California, and he gets this jar of whatever it is they put dead things in, you know, and, and he pulls out this, this jar, and it's got a dead rattlesnake in it, and it's floating up and down, you know, and, and you know, and of course, we're city kids, you know, and, and uh, yeah, we had this one next druggy, you know, just, I mean, he, he got it and was like, wow, you know, <laughs> said it backwards, wow. And, uh, and, and so they're passing this around and then they're telling how to treat for snake bites. And this is, I mean, this is old school, you know, they, where a person got bit, you'd take a razor and you'd cut like an X on the, where the fangs went in and then you'd suck the poison out of, you know. and I looked around my squad and I didn't see anybody I was really that fond of, <laughs> you know, to suck the poison out of, but but anyway, so then he got done, and he said, okay, now, this is, uh, this is fall in California. Uh, the weather's cool, and you don't have to worry about snakes because, you know, the weather's cool. So, okay, well, about two weeks after that, uh, uh, right after the Santa Ana started, now, I don't know if you ever lived in California. So the Santa Ana is a wind that comes up. The humidity drops. The fire index goes off the charts, and the temperature gets up into the 100. And for some reason, the Marine Corps decided, we're getting ready to go to Vietnam, but they decided if the temperature went over 95, you know, we had to stop training. Now, they never did that in Vietnam. If we ever got over 95, we're going to call off the war because it's 97. And so, uh, you know, so uh, the Marine Corps come up with a plan. Because we had to get this train there before we could ship out. So they would get us up early in the morning while it was still dark. And then we would go out to the, to the uh, whatever uh, obstacle course or whatever we were, we were running. And we would stand there until the sun come up and it got hot waiting for the other instructors to come. I mean, only the Marine Corps could have thought of that, you know. <laughs> so uh, and this one day we're running an infiltration course. I never saw anything like it in Vietnam, but this was pretty cool. And so I was a squad. I'm first in line, and I'm gung-ho. And so when they, when they come out there, they said, go. I'm running down. And, and as you get the different obstacles, you had to respond different, different ways. But the first obstacle was like a shallow foxhole. And uh, so I thought what you were supposed to do is drop down into the hole and get into a firing position. So I thought, I want to really make, a, make it look good. So I went running. As I got close, I jumped in the air, screaming the way Marines do, you know, and, uh, and landed on the ground and then rolled into the foxhole. Already in the foxhole, stretched out in the morning sun, was, I mean, like the biggest snake I'd ever seen in my life. 
You know, for you older saints, you know, when we used to watch Tarzan and, you know, the snakes would fall out of the trees, wrap around people and kill, you know, uh, I mean, this thing. And for years, uh, I understand, I held the record for capturing the largest Western Diamondback rattlesnake at Camp Pendleton, California. It was five foot, nine and a half inches long, was about that big around the middle and had a head as big as your fist. Now, as I was falling down, I mean, understand, this is 50-some years ago. As I was falling down into the, to the foxhole, they tell us that our, the human brain is the most complex computer ever built. And, 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 and I always tell people, you'll launch your kids when they're 17 while they still know, anything, know everything. You got to think about that. And, and so and as I'm going down, I mean, this is like, you know, computers like split seconds. I'm going down. My computer says, Raj, if you land on top of the snake and it's pinned to the ground, it can't move. It can't bite you. <laughs> well, that makes sense. But, you know, even the space shuttles, you know, they have a backup computer, you know, because and the backup computer was saying, and who's going to get this out from underneath you? <laughs> Point taken. So, you know, I thought, well, I'm so quick, you know, I'm so quick. I was younger then. And, and so I jumped up. And when I jumped up, I looked down, and the snake had, had bit me, in, you know, below the knee. But its fangs got stuck in my, my pants. We didn't call them pants. And, 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 and the, so here's a snake hanging from my pant leg, you know. I, I got to tell you, I was panicking a little bit, you know. But we Marines, we're trained, respond. And, and so I brought my rifle up over my head, and I brought this rifle down to hit the... I'd never been bit by a snake before, because I didn't understand the muscle you know, uh, spasm you know, that caused my knee to buckle, where I hit, this, hit my knee with my rifle <laughs> across the knee, but it did, and it broke the, broke the stock of the, of the rifle, but it did knock the snake you know, off my, off my leg. And so now I'm on the ground in pain. My, you know, I mean, I didn't really feel a snake bite, but, but now I need really hurt. <laughs> and, and I'm laying there and my rifle's broken and, and the snake now is coiled up at my feet. And I've got like, like the good leg that I could, I, you know, I'm kind of keeping a snake from this trying to strike at me. But again, we Marines were trained to, and I have wonderful peripheral vision. And out of my corner of my eye, I saw my rifle laying on the ground. And so I reached over and grabbed the rifle barrel. And I whipped that puppy over my head. And as I'm bringing it up over my head, great, wonderful peripheral. And as I'm bringing the rifle over my head, I see something out here to the, to the left as the, the butt of the rifle you know, went as far as it could go till it got to the end of the sling and it stopped and then came back. And I mean, the steel butt plate of that M40 hit me right right here. And all of a sudden, blood is just gushing all over me, you know, and I can't see, and the snake's still there, you know. And finally, I'm, I'm you know, blindly, well, I finally, I, I killed it. I, I crushed its skull and broke its neck. Although it is hard to tell where a snake's neck starts and stops, but it was in the neck area. Now, at this point in my life, I was not a wildlife enthusiast, and, and, but, uh, and I really didn't want to pick this thing up, but I want him to know what to treat me for. So I, you know, I picked up the snake and I was holding it up like this. And, and, and you know, snakes are, I don't say neat, they're kind of, they're interesting because when you kill them, they don't stop moving right away. 
you know. And so I, and I picked up my rifle by the sling and it's dangling, you know, and I'm, so I'm kind of, I got the snake and I've got the rifle and I'm, you know. <laughs> and so we always had to have a corpsman, you know, out there in case anybody got hurt. And, uh, and so the corpsman's standing there, he's got his back to me. And uh, so I come up behind him, and I'm, you know, there's a lot of noise and stuff out there. People were shooting blanks and stuff, people yelling, doing crazy Marine Corps stuff. And so I'm behind him. I go, come, Doc, Doc, you know, and because he can't hear me. So I hit him with my rifle and I scream, Doc, I've been bit by a snake. And I'm standing there, you know, and this is 65. Now, I have, I have really cool reading glasses, you know, stuff like it. You know, glasses today are cool. 1965 military glasses were not cool. When this corpsman turned around, I do not know how he got in the Navy. His glasses were like, like this, you know? And he turned around and he looked at because he's, he's turned around and he says, that's crazy, Marine snakes are not out this time of year. <laughs> and the guy turns around and he looks at me and he looks at the snake and I don't know what he saw, but I know what I saw on the other side, of the, his eyes went. <laughs> and the color drained from his face and then, you know? I'm 17 years old, you know, first time away from home, first rattlesnake bite, and I'm starting. So finally, they brought a helicopter and took me back to, to the hospital. And so I'm in the hospital. I'm thinking, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And then this, this Navy commander comes in, this doctor comes in. He says, son, he said, you're going to be okay. And I said, I am? He said, yeah. He said, you see, a, a, a large rattlesnake only gives you part of its venom. A young rattlesnake gets, gives you all of its venom. I said, yes, sir, the large one just gives you enough to kill you once. <laughs> And they didn't have to bite you because your heart just stops, you know. So I got out of the hospital, you know, a couple days later. So a couple weeks later, we're training again, and we're going to do a night raid on a combat, enemy combat village. Never saw a village like that in Vietnam. But uh, so it had been raining now. The, the, the Santa Ana Pass, now it's raining and raining and raining and raining. And so we're going on a patrol. And I'm the point. And so we come to this ravine. And so what we're going to do is we're going to sneak you know, across the ravine, and I'm going to get my squad lined up, and we're going to attack the village. So I, I go first, and uh, I had one guy walking with me, and so we're about, we just get into the ravine, and we're about halfway across, it's like maybe 30 feet, and all of a sudden, I'm hearing a noise. It's really weird. I says, I turned to, to the other Marine, I said, is there a train track near here or something? He goes, no, you know, and we look up, and in the moonlight, <laughs> the, the, the peek through the clouds and the rain, Here's this wall of water coming down the, the, the creek bed, you know? And so uh, and I was kind of shocked by this wall of water coming. The guy from California next to me wasn't because he, he scattered. And so, but before I could get to the, the side of the hill, I got washed away, you know? And, uh, you know, I went one way, my rifle went the other way, and, and then I hit a tree, and that was, you know, so I'm hanging on to this tree. Well, you know, so now all the Marines, their leave was canceled, the, the, and they're out looking for Roger Helley's body. And so they found me, rushed me to the hospital. And so the next day, one of the chief instructors came, and, you know, I wanted to make an impression. It worked. I was voted least likely to, su to, to succeed if I lived long enough to get to Vietnam. But I was not daunted. I, you know, and so we shipped out, and uh, my unit arrived in Vietnam late 1965. And uh, you know, contrary to what I thought, we had good training and everything. But you know, you're never prepared for that first baptism of fire, that day that my company of two, a reinforced company of 219 Marines 
walked into a Viet Cong uh, ambush, and in 45 minutes, my company went from 219 men to 78 that hadn't been killed or wounded. My best friend Danny was killed standing right next to me. My platoon sergeant, a Korean veteran who had taken under his wings when I got to Vietnam, was killed standing on the other side of me. And you know, something about Vietnam, you try not to get close to people. Because see, when you, when you lose somebody that's close to you, it does something to you. I, I'm sure many of us in this room have, uh, have suffered the loss of a loved one. And, and I had never seen anybody die before. And, you know, when you, when you lose somebody you care about, a loved one, a family member, you know, there's a process called the grieving process that you have to work through. But if you don't work through it, you're not going to be healthy. In Vietnam, we couldn't grieve because if you got emotional, you could get yourself or somebody else killed. And so you would take that, you would take that grief and you, uh, the, of your friends and you'd stuff it down inside. But it wasn't just the grief. It was also the hate and then the anger and the fear. All these things that you just stuffed down inside and kept going. Shortly after that, you know, the Marine Corps started a program, a pacification program, where squads of Marines, 12 Marines and a Navy corpsman, would go out into the, and live in villages away from the main bases of operation. And our goal, our mission, was like uh, to win the hearts and minds of the people. And we trained the local militia how to take the night away from the enemy. Because the enemy operated at night. They, 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 they could go into villages and harass people, kill people, take their stuff. And, and so we moved into to these villages and we lived with the people. We fought with them, we ate with them, we bled with them, and sometimes we died with them. And uh, I became a point man. A point man, you know, you lead the patrol. You know, I had good night vision, I had good hearing then, and, and I had, you know, good senses. And, and uh, so we learned where we were, the area we were living in just as well as the enemy did. And so one night we're getting ready to go on patrol and I got into an argument with my squad leader and instead of walking point like I'd been walking for several months, he put me at the back of the patrol. And that night that 12, that 13 man patrol walked into a 60 man Viet Cong ambush. And when the firing stopped, 10 Marines were dead, two were wounded and died on the way to the hospital that night. And the one Marine survived that ambush and would carry the guilt of surviving for 23 years. I did two tours back to back in Vietnam and you know, we used to joke about the, you know, coming home. We called the plane that we would get on the Freedom Bird. We called you know, America the land of the big PX. Uh, that was before Walmart. And, um, you know, and we also joke about that, but I knew that wasn't going to happen because men continued to die all around me. One night after uh, we were on a small fire base on the demilitarized zone, and at 2 o'clock in the morning, a 600 or 400 man North Vietnamese uh, suicide sapper battalion hit our perimeter. And from 2 till about 4.35 in the morning, we fought back and forth in that little perimeter. They had shot up with morphine to deaden the effect of if they were wounded or, or shot. And so we fought literally till dawn. And at dawn, they melt, the ones that were left were melted back into the jungle. And when, when the sun came up all around that little perimeter, there were dead Marines and North Vietnamese soldiers laying sprawled across the compound. Some officers came from our division headquarters to get a battle update. And 
and, and I heard somebody call my name and say, get on that helicopter, and got on the helicopter, and they flew to our base camp, and I got my stuff, and then we flew to Da Nang, and from Da Nang to Okinawa, and from Okinawa to home, and 48 hours after literally fighting hand-to-hand -hand at times for my life, I'm home, and I'm safe. And, you know, but this was... Uh, and I've got some things, you know, that I've, I've, I've been carrying that I, now I, I just want to kind of get some things off my chest. I wanted to talk about it. But this is 1967. See, Vietnam was the first war we saw in our living rooms every night. And by 1967, America, it seemed to us that we're fighting, became embarrassed by us. And my family said, Roger, we're glad you're okay. We're glad you made it home. But this Vietnam thing, well, it's, just a, it's a little awkward, you know. So let's just do this. Let's, let's just not talk about it. And let's just get on with our life. Well, I was grateful to have a life. And I certainly wanted to get on with it. But there was only one problem. And that was when I would go to bed at night and I would close my eyes, I would remember all over again. But for me, fortunately... I was still in the Marine Corps, and I was surrounded by men just like me. And I could look at their ribbons, you know, and know where they had been and what they had done. And there was that camaraderie, that fellowship, understanding. Three years later, I volunteered to go back to Vietnam. And, and after I became a Christian, people said, dude, what, I mean, what was wrong with you? You know, why would you volunteer to go back? And for a long time, I would just kind of nervously just kind of laugh it off. Say, well, you know, I'm a Marine. We're not too smart. And uh, we're the only ones that are allowed to say that. <laughs> and I didn't realize, you know, because by 1970, this country had changed dramatically. And I really got to the point where I was getting angry when I would put my uniform on to go somewhere and some peace protester wanted to kill me for peace. That was always an interesting experience. Or somebody that I'd never met before, you know, calling me murderer and baby killer when I knew I had not done anything wrong. And so by 1970, you know, sometimes feelings... They may not be based on reality, but they're very real to you. And for still now, for us that were serving, it was very well. I felt like this wasn't my home anymore. This is not my, and I felt more needed, useful, and accepted 12,000 miles from home, stinking, leech-infested rice paddy, malaria, mosquito-infested jungle. I felt more useful, needed, and accepted there than I did in my own country. Well, that one was obvious. The other one took a lot, lot, lot longer. And that was that inside there was a young man that felt guilty because he was alive when men better than him hadn't come home at all. June 1970, leading my I was a sergeant, but I was an acting, uh, I was a, a platoon leader, and I was leading my platoon on a mission uh, uh, in South Vietnam when I was critically wounded. And I woke up in a hospital uh, six days later. And as I was laying in that bed, and I'm probably coming out of unconscious, I saw my twin brother walk past my bed. And he stopped by a doctor 
And he said, excuse me, I'm Sergeant Helly's brother. Can you tell me how my brother's doing? And the doctor looked at him, put a chart down, not knowing that I was conscious. He said, son, your brother's going to die. We've done everything that we can do. And I saw my brother stand there for a minute, and he said, well, could you tell me where he's at? They told me he's in this ward, but I can't find him. Apparently he had walked fat. And uh, so the doctor put the, you know, took my brother by the arm, and a nurse came on the other side of him, and they walked back two beds to where I was laying and just stopped. And my brother stood there for a minute looking at this mass of human rubble. My head was the size of a basketball. My face was all black and blue. My eyes were black and blue. You couldn't even, he couldn't even tell my eyes were open. I couldn't move. I couldn't talk. I, I really couldn't even lift a finger. And my brother stood there for a moment with this blank look on his face. And then I saw when he, the recognition came that he realized that this was me laying there and his face just went white. And he stood there for a moment and he began to, to weep. And he stood there and then he started to take a step to my bed and his legs just buckled underneath him and he, he landed uh, his face at the end of my bed holding on to the, to the sheets just weeping. And, you know, I couldn't talk. I couldn't say anything. I was three months from my 23rd birthday. This was my third time getting wounded. And I want to tell you, church, this... I felt a fear in my heart that, that was deeper than anything I'd seen in three tours of combat. I didn't want to die. And I remember being so afraid. And I remember just closing my eyes and praying in my heart and saying, God, if there really is a God, if you let me live, I'll do anything you want. And then I went to sleep. And part of this story I got later, you know, uh, after I came home, but my brother sat by my bed, slept on the floor, or sat in a chair, or one night, one night there was a bed, but about, he told me about a week and a half later, a doctor came in, took him aside, he said, son, he said, your brother's going to live, we think you're being here has helped, he's turned the corner, but he's really messed up. And so it was another week before they felt I, could, I would be okay to, to ship back to the States for, for more treatment. And I started hemorrhaging internally uh, from stomach wounds uh, on the plane to Japan. They took me off. I was four weeks, eight surgeries, I think, in Japan, then on another flight to Great Lakes Naval Hospital outside of Chicago. And I remember they took me into the uh, triage area to change my, bat, my, my dressings and everything. And the doctor changing the, the bandage on my, my leg said, son, so you got gangrene in your leg. We're going to have to amputate it. And, uh, you know, uh, and I remember that doctor coming in day after day after day after day. And uh, uh, but a week and a half or so later, you know, you, you develop a sense. I was in this ward with all these people, but I, if somebody got close to my bed at night, I would wake up. I would just sense their presence. And I'd sense somebody by my bed, and I woke up, and I looked, and the doctor was standing by my bed, and, and he was looking at me, and we saw I was awake. He smiled. He says, Rod, you said... Uh, that gangrene in your leg is gone. And he just kind of kind of shook his head with a little smile. He said, you know, that kind of gangrene just doesn't go away. And, of course, he was a Navy doctor, so I just, you know, I said, well, Doc, Marines are tough. Hoorah. <laughs> he just shook his head walked away. Yeah, that, that's smart. And, and so then the same doctor, uh, one of the two bullets, that one bullet hit my stomach, one bullet shattered my elbow, and, and uh, the doctor said, okay, we, we, have a, we found a bone infection, so we're going to have to amputate your arm above the elbow to stop the bone infection. So they took me down to surgery. And, and then when I woke up in recovery, I had this horrifying feeling. When I was coming out from the recovery, you know, all of a sudden I realized I was holding my right hand, you know? And I thought, you know, those guys, you know, <laughs> didn't throw the parts away. 
you know, <laughs> let me hold it. But then my fingers moved, and, I was, and so I, I, and I'll never, I'll never forget what the doctor said when he came in later. He said, you know, I said, I was already amputate your arm, but he said, but then I, I just cut it open and, I, and opened it up and said there was no bone infection. So he said, we did this, this, and this, which medical stuff, which I didn't know what he was doing, and he probably didn't either. But, uh, <laughs> so, but then they began to say, I said, okay, you're going to be here for about two years, maybe more. You're going to have surgery, therapy, recovery. Then you're going to have more surgery, therapy, recovery. We're going to put pins and plates in your legs. You're going to have leg braces. Uh, you're going to have 15% use of your right arm. Uh, you have shrapnel in your eyes. It's eventually going to cause you to go blind. You have some other injuries and you won't be able to have children. And, you know, so, uh, you know, kind of on and on they went uh, to encourage me. <laughs> and nine months later, I walked out of the hospital, you know, 27 operations, four plastic surgery operations on my face. Yeah, I, I, I know. I, I didn't always look this good. <laughs> And, you know, when I walked out of the hospital, I could put clothes on, I could put nice clothes on, and I could cover up a lot of wounds. And on the outside, I looked okay, but on the inside, I was dying. I met my wife less than a year after I got out of the hospital, convinced her I was normal. <laughs> she married me anyway, and, and for the next two years, I literally put her through her own PTSD program. Because every single night, when I'd finally go to bed, I would relive Vietnam over and over and over again. And I was dying. You know, I grew up with alcoholic parents, and I said, I'll never drink, but you know, I, I, and I wouldn't take, I wouldn't even take pain medication when I was in the hospital. I'd rather have the pain, because I was afraid of getting addicted like I'd seen other people get addicted. But alcohol, and I was a criminal, a professional investigator. Alcohol in my profession was okay. And, and so literally, I became an alcoholic. Until uh, one day we visited a church. I'm pretty sure it was Easter because they had the white flowers in the front. You know, Christmas is the red flowers. And, it, it, it says Easter. and so we went to this church. Now, see, my, when I was growing up, when my mom remarried my stepdad, he would take us to a traditional church. You know, we used to start church 11 o'clock sharp, end at 12 o'clock dull. And, um, and in Vietnam, the only time we had uh, church was, they called it memorial service, after people you knew and cared about were killed. And I don't want to have anything more to do with death. But we went to this church on, on Easter Sunday, and, and I didn't know Shirley had filled out a card that said, would like a visit from the pastor. And I know none of you are going to understand this, okay? Uh, it, I'm kind of over it. But we were fighting one night after work, and looked out the window, and up the driveway was this pastor. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do? Opened the door, <laughs> invited him in, and, and, you know, we're talking. And so at this time, I had been diagnosed at the Omaha uh, VA hospital with uh, traumatic rheumatoid arthritis from my wounds. And I was getting, they said, you know, we've done everything. We've tried different things. Two or three years, you're going to be in a wheelchair. It's just the reality of your injuries, which was not very promising to my career, which was taking off. And, uh, and, and so the pastor noticed that I was having trouble, you know, getting around. And uh, he asked me what happened. So I told him, he said, well, we're having a prayer and praise service at our church tonight. This is a Lutheran church. He said, we're having a prayer and praise service tonight at our church. Well, can we pray for you? It was like, dude, whatever floats your boat. I mean, I, but I said, 
yeah, you know. I got up the next day. I got out of bed. I thought, well, this is crazy. This is, you know, I feel good today. And then when it lasted, you know, I thought, oh, my God. I, my first thing was, you know, I got healed. No, they're going to cut my disability, you know, that little <laughs> pitiful disability check. They're going to, but, and uh, so surely uh, they asked us if we would go to a couple's Bible study. And Shirley said, yes. I looked at her and, uh, you know, because I knew there was no Christians in the Marine Corps. They were all wimps. And uh, so we went to this Bible study. And they seemed like pretty cool. Nine couples besides us. And so they went around the room and they had icebreaker questions. You know what icebreaker questions are, don't you? Well, they, these questions that try to make you feel comfortable when you already know you're not comfortable with those kind of people. Asking all these questions. The last question was, when was God real in your life? You know, we think peer pressure is something that high school kids deal with. Yeah, you know, that, I'm in this group of religious people. I'm trying to think of something that sounds religious. And they're going around the room. They're getting close to me. I'm starting to pick because I can't think of anything, you know. Uh, and uh, before they got to me, friends, something happened, never happened before since. But it was like I was lifted up out of that room. And I was looking down in another room. And I saw a man laying on a bed all bloody and bleeding. I heard him say, God, if there really is a God, if you let me live, I'll do anything you want. And then I was back in that room. You know, sometimes Marines aren't real bright. It was like a mirror was held in front of my face. It's like God spared my life. Why? And you'd think that would have been enough. But it was six months later when my wife walked out on me. She said, I love you, but you're killing me too, that God allowed me to hit rock bottom. Shirley said, I'm leaving. I moved her out so fast because I want to get back to having fun. I didn't have fun. Ten days later, we got together. We wanted this to be amicable. We wanted to divorce his friends. You know, we are people say that, right? And, uh, and when we got together, we did this in the mall publicly so Shirley couldn't shoot me or, you know, and I, I didn't think she had a gun, but, you know, hate, like we say down south, he needed killing. But uh, <laughs> we got together, and Shirley looked at me, and she said, you know, unless we put God first, in our life, we're not going to make it. Man, something just, it resonated in my soul. And I said, yeah, but how do we do that? And so we went to her apartment. She had a really nice apartment. Knelt by the bed, and I cried out from a broken heart, thank God the scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I said, God, what's missing in my life? And that still small voice of the Holy Spirit said, Rod, surely it's not what's missing, it's who's missing. You need Jesus. And I didn't do this right. You know, I didn't watch Christian television, you know, in the Lutheran church. Nobody prayed out loud. And, uh, and I probably didn't do this, but I said, God, if you can use somebody like me, here I am. And for some of you understand, not, you, it, whether you were in combat or not, but when you get up every morning and you feel like you're putting on a backpack of 100 pounds of emotional combat gear. You drag this weight around every single day. And when I said that prayer from a broken heart, all of a sudden a weight just fell off of me. And if that wasn't proof enough that night, I closed my eyes and I went to sleep. And I slept like a little baby for the first time in four and a half years. And I've never had a nightmare of Vietnam or anything else since. A 
Okay, I will admit that I had one dream one night where I was preaching in a church just like this, and I was so boring that I fell asleep. So, <laughs> but that's not it. You know, God healed our marriage. We have, I have a son and daughter that the doctor said never have. I have five grandchildren, and the joy of our life was for 40 years, we got to get up every day and go to work, go to minister at a place called Teen Challenge, where interestingly enough, God had us working with broken, wounded people, just like me. And as we close this service this morning, you know, some of you probably know Vietnam vets, or maybe now people, men and women who served in Afghanistan, Iraq, but you know, in our culture today, you don't have to go to Vietnam, or you don't have to go to Iraq, or you don't have to go to Afghanistan to be wounded. We are living, I mentioned at the beginning, we're, 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 there is a spiritual battle going on for the soul of this nation, because God has a divine destiny for America. We're not a perfect nation. You know, there's, there's not a perfect person. There was one perfect person, and none of us, and me especially, I'm, I'm not it. There was one, one. Why do we have all this expectation? I want to find a perfect church. I want to find a perfect job. I want to find a perfect mate. You know, ain't going to happen, because as soon as you become part of it, you've just messed it all up. <laughs> But we have these unrealistic expectations, and, and, uh, uh, and so, but we, we're living in a culture that's geared to wound you. And in this room today, you know, I mentioned earlier that I, this is my opinion, I'm talking about the church in general, not, not certain churches like this church. And let me say something real quick. You know, surely I, the, the one thing I miss since I retired is that having Dave and Christopher and some of you from, from Heartland that would come and minister to us, and I needed that every year. And I told my staff, I told people that I knew if I lived in Iowa, this would be my church. And Dave would be my pastor. Because I receive so much from these guys when they come, and it challenges me to be a better husband, be a better father, better grandfather, better leader. And you, I hope you understand what we have because we got people out there. It's like, well, you know, this is not a perfect church, and so I'm going to go find one, and 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 you're missing out. I want, but I believe God is getting. There's, we are about ready to experience a move of God. Just this morning, you got two people you commissioned to send out, and God's bringing in new people, fresh, fresh vision, fresh strength, you know, enthusiasm. Uh, I've got enthusiasm. Uh, I, just at 71, I just don't have the strength to. You know, uh, so what I want to do is I want to mentor and, and raise up. We, and this church is raising up leaders and sending them out. Amen. But you know, you can't do that if you're wounded. And we have way too many people in the body of Christ today that are wounded. And so as we close this service this morning, that was the one thing that I was praying, God, how, which direction do you want me to go? And I'm sure there, there's probably a few people here this morning that you kind of, you're interested in this Jesus thing and you'd like to, you know, kind of, but you haven't really got to the place where you're really to go all in. And I pray that something that was shared today, the worship, I mean, we had enough, I could have left at the worship, but I came a long way, so I wanted to, to, I, I got, I was ready with the, after the worship, if we really paid attention to the words that we were singing. And, but, you know, we cannot reach our world if we're wounded. And there are way too many Christians saying the body of Christ has become wounded. And when you're wounded, you pull back. 
And you'll come and, you know, you'll, you'll kind of, you, you like the, you, you can feel something, you know it's there, but you feel like there's something missing for your life, you know, and you feel like, man, uh, you know, only people like Pastor Dave and, and Pastor Christopher and others, you know, that they, they, you know, God uses them, but he can't use me. I know how that feels. Because when God called me in the ministry 40 some years ago, I thought, God, who am I? You know, kind of like Moses, you know, who am I? Well, nobody's special, but it was just like he said to Moses. He said, you know, well, I said, God, I can't do this. And he says, I know, you know, uh, you can't, but I can through you. And so my prayer has been this morning, God wants to turn this sanctuary into, it's already holy ground, but it's going to be a place of healing this morning for wounds. There are some of their women here who have been so wounded by things that have happened to you, the abuse, the rejection, the fear, the things happen. Maybe you had an abortion, maybe you were raped, maybe, and there's some of you that, you know, you, you don't have to grow up in an abusive home to be wounded. You know, you don't have to have a mother that looks at you and says, you're going to be a bum for the rest of your life. I prayed for my mom for 22 years, 22 years before she met Jesus, before she went home to heaven. But, you know, it, it's, it, it may be something not, not what was said is what was not said, what was not done. There are men here that you're going to, you, you want to prove that you're going to be not the person that your family said or somebody else said that you were. But you know what? And, that, and no matter what you accomplish, it's not enough. And I'm here to tell you today, there's a God in heaven who looks down and he says, I love you. And you've been carrying these wounds around for way too long. And this morning, by the power of my spirit, I want to bring healing into your life. I know I'm over my time, but I thought I was getting paid by the hour. I want to tell one. <laughs> On my second mission trip, the one place I never wanted to go back ever, ever, and then 30 years ago, God took me back to Vietnam for what I thought was a one-time experience. And six months later, I went back with my family. Six months later, I got... Uh, to go to a place where 23 years earlier, 12 Marines died violently on a rice paddy dike outside a little fishing village. And I remember with my family there kneeling on the ground and we had a memorial service for the, for the, for my friends that had been killed. And, uh, uh, and I remember just praying, God, I don't understand still why. Why am I alive? And they're not. And, and there, was no, there was no voice from heaven, no, no choirs, but something was dropped into my spirit that said, I spared your life for a reason. And now all you, I just want you to be faithful to what I've called you to do. And so every day, I, be, I begin praying, I never want to be comfortable. Teen Challenge will do that. Make sure you're not comfortable. <laughs> and, and I never want to lose the, the, the wonder, God, of your mercy in my life. And if he did that for me, he will do that for you this morning. All you have to do is step out and accept that. And so I'm going to ask if the worship team would come. And just play some music. I'm going to ask the prayer teams to come. And let's stand, shall we? And so this morning, I want to pray for wounded people. 
And so you might say, well, how do I know if I'm wounded? Because the memory of what someone did or did not do to you is still painful. And God is saying, you need healing. I want to heal that. Now, some of you think, well, I've been going to this church or I've been a Christian for a while. And if I step out, somebody's going to think there's something wrong with me. It's only in a John Wayne movie where you get half your arm blown off. And he said, not a problem. Takes his bandana out and ties it off, you know, and, you know, goes to the rest of the battle. He's got this arm, you know, and this one. Because, you know, in, in, in the jungle, that your arm will rot off and it'll kill you. Infection will set in and kill you. It's those little wounds that the enemy does us if we leave untreated can cause spiritual poison in our spirit. So if you're wounded today, God wants to touch your heart. Just step out right now where you are. Just come and stand across here. And we're going to just take a few minutes. Here's to take a few minutes. Thank you for having the courage for stepping out. And here's the other thing, and I want to get you prepared for two things. One, as you come, we're going to pray. God's going to start something supernatural today. But I know, you know, the, if you know the enemy, you know, t- either this afternoon, if not this afternoon, tomorrow morning at, at the latest, especially if you're married, you know, the, the enemy will say to you, hey, nothing happened to you. That guy got you emotional. And uh, it, w- it was just emotion. You know, I told you the doctor told my brother, he said, Ron, your brother's going to live. I couldn't talk. But if the doctor would have come to my bed that morning, he says, hey, Raj, how you feeling? I'm going to die. That's how I felt, but I had turned the corner, and the healing started. And you know, and the only reason I can tell this story today is because 44 years ago, Jesus Christ came into a broken, wounded man's heart, and, and he took all the bitterness, he took the hate, he took the fear and the regret and the anger, and he cleansed it by his spirit, and he closed up the wounds, and he let them heal. And you know, I still remember Vietnam today. But here's the difference, that today when I remember Vietnam, the pain that was once associated with it is gone and the healing is there and the testimony is his, amen? And that's why God is raising up a new army, especially of young people that are gonna be, God's gonna heal them, he's gonna empower them and he's gonna start sending them out to impact this world. I believe we're getting so, you'll hear the term, it gets the darkest before the dawn. You look at our nation, we are prime for another great awakening, like this one before the Revolutionary War, the one before the Civil War, where God's going to pour out His Spirit. It's going to start with a revival. I don't care where it starts. And then it's going to spread like wildfire all across the country. Can you imagine social media, you know, that people are posting, you know, in a service, somebody getting out of a wheelchair, somebody with blind eyes being healed. You know, they try to limit what, who you can say things to, especially if you're politically incorrect, because I'm really politically incorrect. And, you know, and it's going to be, they can't stop it. I mean, it's going to go like wildfire from one, you know, like, wow, man, people are getting saved. And I want, and it's going to be hungry. And God is waiting for, for men and women just like you to who have been healed and empowered. Father, I pray for these men and women that are standing here right now, Lord. Father, reach down, Lord, they're wounded, they're hurting, they've been hurt, they've been rejected, they've been abused. Father, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, 
Father, we give these, we take the dirty bandages that we've been trying to cover up the hurt. And Father, bring your healing power into our soul, into our spirit. Heal our broken heart. Heal our woundedness, Lord. We forgive those, Father, who have hurt us and rejected us and, and, and done horrible things. We forgive them, Father. Now, Lord, pour out your spirit. Your, wrap your arms of love around each one of these wounded warriors, Father. Wrap your arms of love around them. Father, let freedom, spiritual freedom, come into this place today, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we did this morning, Father, we're going to worship you, Father, because that's the way we do battle, Father. That's the way we do battle. Now just begin to worship him. Just begin to, as they, they pray for you, worship him as we let the healing flow throughout this place. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.